Hello, my name is Janice B. Gordon, and this is Scare Yourselves Podcast. Welcome to Scare Yourselves Podcast, listed number nine of 43 best podcasts for every sales professional. I am Janice B. Gordon, the customer growth expert recommended by LinkedIn Sales as one of 15 innovative influencers, sales influencers to follow. In today's episode of Scale Your Sales Podcast, my guest talks about their founder's story, and it's very much a story about grit and commitment. They are disruptors into the recruitment industry. We discuss diversity and their view on how they're ensuring that they're not only diverse as an organization, but they're promoting a diversity within uh, their client organizations as well by many of the shared training and, and projects that they're doing. But from a sales point of view, they very much have their own sales methodology and they call it the FB way. An FB way stands for control, influence, and urgency. But it may not be what you're thinking of. So you'll have to listen to the podcast to find out more about the FB way selling process. My next guest is co-founder of Forsyth Barnes, one of the fastest growing businesses, Global Bootstrap Talent Partners. They headhunt mid to senior execs across um, e-tel, which is electronic retailing, sports, entertainment, and fintech. Please welcome to Scale Your Sales podcast, Rohil Ahmad. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. I'm really interested in, uh, but I might give you a hard time. I'm with you for the warning, and I'll, I'll tell fine. you why in a, in a moment. Oh, it might it might um, you might become aware of of one of the bugbears that I've got about recruitment and that whole um, this whole area is that organisations will say say to me, especially in sales. They'll say to me, well, this is what the customer asks for. They ask for um, uh, Russell Group. You know, so one of the problems now, you and I are black. Now, one of the problems I have is that it means that organizations keep recruiting the same people all the time. And they're not expanding the recruitment pool. So actually, who who is should be driving this in your opinion should it be the people in the recruitment talent acquisition space that's pushing yeah. that i mean it certainly should be the companies but not enough of them doing that so i'm really keen to hear your view in this of this area what you do why you're doing it and what more you think needs to be done in order to expand not only the recruitment pool but you know the general um, yeah. levels of management uh, to be more diverse. Yeah, of course. So um, I don't disagree with you with a lot of it. Um, I think probably a wider thing to discuss, there's a, still a societal issue around it, right? Um, by diversity, whether we're talking sex, whether we're talking gender or um, uh, race or anything like that. Um, I think it's everyone's responsibility, if I'm being honest, to have a more open mindset um, I think as the generations progress, we are probably getting a lot better than what it has been. 
Um, but I still still think there are huge swaths of the industries who are still very kind of old school or traditional, that type of thing as well. I'll give you a good example of the insurance sector, which is where I started my career. Um, I was a young Asian male in the insurance sector. Um, and it was that kind of uh, culture of old school, traditional white male um, deals done in certain places in a certain way and things like that as well. But a lot of that has changed with the advent of growing and scaling businesses and so on as well. So we speak to a lot of businesses about diversity. We've actually got a diversity guarantee as part of our service offering as well to promote it. And that's a big thing. Obviously, I come from a diverse background. My business partner fully supports it as well. And we're good friends. So it's something that I think for us, it's something that we've got to keep at the forefront of conversation. We held a DNI event um, about last month or so. We've now been invited to another one of our clients are holding an event and we're running it with them. So it's about getting that conversation out there, right? And understanding that there are huge benefits to it. It's not just buzzwords. It's not just a thing for the moment or anything like that. It's actually statistical data which backs up the the benefits to businesses of being more diverse yeah yeah okay well i'm glad to hear that it's at the forefront of of your mind you know sales insurance you know they are industry that are very much stuck in in the traditions of of what a good salesperson or a good insurer looks like um and uh, that's not where their their customers are um so yeah i'm glad glad to hear that this is something you're you're leading with so i've also read that um you're disrupting the recruitment industry and i'd like to find out how you're disrupting yeah, it makes sense. So kind of what you touched on at the beginning there of the, the recruitment companies often say, well, this is what the customer wants, right? Not just in diversity and in pretty much most of it, but I love our industry. But there's, let's be honest, there's not much has changed or developed or innovated over the last two or three decades. Yes, platforms have. Yes, forms of communication have. Um, but take something as simple as advertising jobs, other than the medium that it's now advertised on, which it used to be the papers and now it's online. And traditionally, a lot of that is LinkedIn and, and sort of um, job boards and things like that. It's the same thing. It's still written text. The form of that is still the same. And I guarantee you now that most businesses are still training their people in a way that I was taught almost 15 years ago. And that was taught to my boss at the time another decade or 15 years before that. And it's the same stuff. And because we've got such low barriers to entry in our industry, such a sales-driven industry as well, it's it's kind of getting by with the minimum. Whereas we work in some amazing sectors. The way we shop is completely different. The way we bank is completely different now. And yet we're not keeping a pace with the innovation in those sectors that we service within our own as well. So I think that's the that's the kind of underlying foundation of the frustration that we have and that I have with the sector itself. And then it starts to look at that to say, right, what can we start to do to try and drive that innovation in there? And if there's a North Star, if you like, it's for every client and everyone who's involved in an FB run process for on behalf of our clients to come away from that interaction, whether they're successful or not, to just turn around and say, do you know what? That is the best run process I've ever experienced. I've never received the packs and the digital media in the way that FB have sent out to me. I've never received this kind of information on the shortlist that FB have sent out to me. I've never been through an offer process that has felt like that and actually tied into the psychological impact of when you actually receive an offer. And for the client to be understood that they're being represented in such a way that no one else is doing out there as well. So we're starting to tap in. We've kind of broken it down into key touch points throughout any sort of typical process. 
I said, what, what's the industry doing at the moment? And then we tried to take our cues from other sectors, which are much more forward thinking, which are much more innovative than ours. And how can we start to uncover some of those into our industry? That's, that's really interesting. I mean, there's a, a process that uh, I talk about in actually starting with what, what uh, the best looks like in any industry and very much borrowing the methodologies that other people are using to, that work um, and start to, you know, remodel based on what the, the, you want your customer to walk away with, with the outcomes. And, and that's not just physical, it's emotional outcomes that you want them to, to walk away with. But you've got two customers. You've not only got the client that is wanting to fill a role, you've also got the, um, the, the, um, talents the candidates the candidates as as well and it's both of those people that can be promoting you isn't it both of those people can say this is such a great process so i'm interested in your background as to why recruitment how you came across it and then also how you decide where you decided to start to re-innovate this this whole traditional space so I started off in sales, I guess, look, there, there were various things that I was doing, kind of being anywhere between 12 and 15, 16. I was explaining to some of the guys in the New York office at the moment that um, I started um, modifying and repairing PCs when I was about 13, 14 or so. And then I'd, I'd make a bit of money from that and so on as well. And there's always an element of sales that comes through that, right? Even trying to, I guess, negotiate with your parents of, I will clean the taxi for this amount. No, I'll give you this amount. Well, can I take the tips of whatever change I can find hidden down the side of the seats, that type of thing. So you start from a really early age, essentially. Um, 15, got my national insurance number, and um, a few of my friends are working in a call centre environment, which was trying to book appointments. It was rough. It was, yeah, it was tough. It was tough enough in that you were only given three-hour shifts, um the majority about 90 95 percent of people were not allowed to do a double shift because it was that tough mentally and it was an automated phone dialing system the minute you've um been sworn at the, the phone's hung up or anything like that phone the call and end and you've got no time between the next one it's an automatic dialer which is ready on the next one and so you're straight into it and the resilience that that taught me was amazing. It was probably one of the best education like grounds that I could have possibly had as well for later on in life. Just taught me that not to fear rejection. And from there, any conversation that wasn't I wasn't being sworn at was actually a pretty good <laughs> conversation, to be honest. So yeah, um, so started there. Uh, pre-uni, I then managed to get a field sales role. Again, I'm sort of 17 at this point. Um, no one else my age is going out getting a field sales role, selling advertising space in the motor industry with a company car, decent salary, et cetera, as well. So I've always kind of prided myself in in progressing whatever I do, um, but also kind of having roles above my station. I was never afraid of applying for roles and interviewing for roles, which I had, which most people would say I had no right to have or even try and interview for or apply for or anything like that. And that lack of fear has always kind of spurred me on. Um, and then did a law degree, fast forward, came back into sales because I knew I didn't want to pursue law um, after uni and came into recruitment by way of a sales job, had numerous interviews, was told by a few that I was, they thought I'd be too difficult to manage, overambitious, um, 
so came into recruitment, which was a sales role, yeah, uh, and then progressed from there. It's interesting. You're in sales, uh, and you went went to uni and did law. Was that like influence from your parents? You've got to get a proper job. Sales? Oh no! What was that? A lot of people do assume that. I actually had an interest in law since I was about ten. Right. Okay. So yeah, yeah, had had a keen interest going into it, but quickly kind of found that the only real areas of interest were probably criminal situation and criminal at the time and, and even now it's just getting worse and worse powers being devolved and so on as well it's kind of a race to the bottom within the criminal space yeah um in hindsight now since running fb i probably would have uh, enjoyed uh, contract law a bit more than i gave it appreciation for mm. um but i wouldn't change anything for where i am and where i am today it's, it was all part of the journey right um, yeah so yeah yeah excellent excellent so then into recruitment that's sales yeah. and and then understanding this is to you know traditional sales environment how did you then step out of that to co-found fb and then start to think about how we can innovate that what was the thinking process behind that so i've worked with my current business partner since 2010 so we've known each other a good time now and probably for the first seven eight years of that probably spent more time with him than his own wife did just through working, sharing hotels, traveling together and so on as well. Um, We're similarly minded. We've got the ambition in there as well, but I think both of us were just frustrated in our previous businesses that their ambition just kind of didn't match ours, their scale of what they wanted to achieve, the pace that they were operating at, the attention to detail probably just wasn't there. And no disrespect to them, they're just in a different place in their life as well. But we just felt that we needed to kind of branch out and do this for ourselves. Um, we probably had greater ambitions in becoming a global business and in creating a share scheme, which we've actually gone and put in place now, um, where we wanted to create millionaires as part of this business um, as an added thank you uh, for those that have helped grow the business alongside us and with us. Um, and plus, neither of us are that egotistical where this is about Scott or myself and, and it's all about us, et cetera. Like we've, we've got bigger designs than that, I guess. So I think growing with people has become really important to us. As opposed to when we started um, innovating and so on, that probably didn't come in the first couple of years, if I'm being honest. Those first two years were finding our way of making sure we had a profitable business. We could pay everyone without fail. We could pay our bills without fail. We, yeah, we just had a successful business. We were finding our feet through that, right? And it's after maybe a couple of years or so that we kind of come through that period. So actually we're doing better, not necessarily better than we thought, but we probably weren't finding it as challenging as we first thought. And I don't mean that with arrogance. It's, mm-hmm. it's truth. We kind of accelerated faster than we thought we would be able to and achieve more than we probably gave ourselves credit for it was at that point where we started to look around and say look we're just perpetuating the same cycle that has been before us for the last two or three decades we're not doing anything different and we kind of back ourselves to be different and actually be good enough to do something different and build that as well so we started taking more and more risks of what we're doing how we're doing it making sure we're not just doing what everyone else kind of talks about and so on as well and that kind of strength and belief has just grown and grown and as we've started to become successful in those areas it's uh, no, actually, we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to the industry that we've benefited so much from to actually try and change things. And even to uh, yesterday, or the day before yesterday, Scott and I are discussing our internal um, structures and, and IT structures and everything and, and landed on actually, you know, let's, whilst it's not the given thing to build something internally to then take it externally, basically a CRM system, 
do you know what? Let's do it. If we actually want to change things in our industry the way that we think we're capable of, why are we going to hold ourselves back just because the, the given wisdom is, oh, don't get distracted by this. Oh, let's do it. Let's go all in. Yeah. And if we screw up, we screw up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, you've got to be willing to fail if you want to um, push the boundaries. You've just got to be accepting yeah. that it might not work. Otherwise, you'll never push any boundaries at all, would you? What's the worst that's going to happen? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm really interested, you know, COVID hits and you decide that you're going to invest in a bigger office. Now, there may be, there must have been, everyone else was downsizing, whereas you're not. But there must have been some other economic indicators, some opportunities that you think you could have captured in order to support this bigger space. So Tell me about what was happening, you know, in in your discussions with Scott around that time that gave you enough confidence to do that. Confidence in ourselves. I remember the conversation clearly where he did before we put pen to paper on the office because we, we'd been going through the details of it and we had to go through the legals of it way before March 23rd when we'd gone into lockdown. But it was April time, but we were still yet to put pen and paper because we still had to get some of the legals sorted out. Um and he did look at some other options to see, is, is, are we still right to do this? And we actually looked at ourselves and spoke to each other and said, you know what? On video, not in person. <laughs> we spoke to ourselves and said, again, we back ourselves. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? We're going to come through this one way or the other. That probably coincided timelines-wise with a conversation that I had with the senior leaders across the business at the time to say, look, you're probably going to think I'm mad for saying this. But we're not changing any of our targets, any of our ambitions that were set at the end of 2018 for, um, sorry, the end of 2019 for 2020. So we're not reducing our, our financial targets. We're not reducing our growth targets. We're not reducing our headcount targets. We're not reducing anything in the way that we're doing it. I promise you now, and look, I'll be honest as well, at this point, as I'm saying all of this, I did not anticipate COVID or had no clue it was going to last for as long as it lasted in our head come lockdown time i thought it'd be a two to four weeks and we'd all be back out and it'd be life as normal type thing as well like the rest of us (laughs) yeah maybe a bit of naivety in it and but sometimes there's a lot of beauty in that naivety um but sat with the management team and said we're not changing a thing you might think i'm mad i know the taps have been turned off pretty much everywhere we need to make sure that we are pivoting what we're doing internally because things might be quiet for a, a little while now we might be impacted for the next few months but there are still some silver linings and benefits, i.e. we can train the hell of our, out of ourselves in this period now. So as that business, uh, so as the market starts to come back to us a little bit, where others are still distracted by COVID, where others are still distracted by the change in routine and this isn't, the market's not this and, and, and so many people are moaning about COVID and the government's response at the time and so on. We're going to be ready and primed and sharper and stronger and fitter and all kinds of cliches to actually take some of that business as early as possible. And so that's what we did. We trained every day. We engaged with our people every day. So we're ready to take the market once it starts to come back to us. Okay, so I get that. You're backing yourself. Uh, We all think it's going to last a month and we'll be back to normal. Uh, Your investors uh, are, are, are with you all the way but it goes on. So, you know, there's only so much training you can do. And if your customers are not ready, they're not coming to you, then there must have been at some point you think, oh, 
did we do the right thing? Are we, you know, are, is this is this ever going to turn around? Because there was a lot of companies even six months down the line were after furlough were thinking we can't sustain this these people are you know are going to have to go out the door so you're wanting to put more more um uh costs yeah. yeah so there must have been a little bit of doubt that creaked in at, at that point because it was just going on no i think you always ask yourself the question of are we doing the right thing is this the most prudent thing that we can be doing i think we've got a good yin and yang between myself and scott in that i'm more like let's push forward and he will always look at the costs and the finance of it as well um and look this might not be what you want to hear but no in that we we honestly backed ourselves to come through it we had hit a our target for may and then it was in early june that they announced we could do social distance foot golf so as a reward, not just a false reward, but actually for hitting a target in May, um, we ended up doing social distance foot golf. And so we, we'd started. And that, then off the back of that, our people actually asked us, can we get back into office? So look, I was kept busy enough on a personal that I, I didn't let those things kind of creep in. And mm-hmm. um, I exited a number of kind of networking WhatsApp groups where most of the conversation was on COVID and government response and complaints and so on and so forth. My main focus is looking after my people. My main focus was making sure that they're engaged, that they're kept as happy as possible, that we were um, interacting with them on group sessions as well as individual sessions and so on. Didn't really have time, much time. I mean, I had a new uh, a baby boy that, around that sort of time as well. He was about a year or so old. Didn't have the time mm-hmm. to kind of think of what's the worst and again, I always come back to that thing of what is the worst? If we have to start again, we have to start again. Um, would it be annoying? Would it be disappointing? Absolutely. But um, someone very close to me who speaks to a lot has often said that you don't even allow yourself to use the word failure. And I, I wouldn't have thought of it as a failure. It, I would have thought of it, it's a lesson. We, we learn, we develop, and we go forwards with that to try and not make the same mistake again. Um yeah, we didn't have the time to think about those things. Right. I mean, so would you? I mean, I, I always think failure is feedback, that, and the quicker you can get the feedback, the quicker you can move on to the next thing. So it's really positive. Um, but would you say, you know, perhaps vice uh, to other founders that it's kind of, you know, you're all in. You've got to be all in and be willing to fail, get that that feedback, and then when you do, you just pivot. <laughs> You know, is that the secret? Is that the thing that you need to do? Be all in. Yeah, I think there's a saying that people go around saying that there is a psychological trait shared between entrepreneurs and and serial killers, and that that trait is one that they don't really see failure. No, no serial killer goes out there like wanting and expecting to kill. They all get they all try it because they think they'll get away with it, right? Um much of the same of very often will I go into a situation and only see the upside. I'm aware that there's downside there and I'm aware that there's that potential for failure there, but I don't really see it as a failure either, to be honest. I think you have to be all in. I think you have to back yourself and go for it. And if it doesn't work out for whatever reason, then that's absolutely fine. Just make sure you take the learns from it. We started an office in Leeds in 2018. Now, yeah, you can call that a failure if you want to put it under that banner. I still don't look at it as a failure. But the lessons learned from that 
have then impacted the way we've set up our New York office, which has been completely different and been transformational for us as a business. And we'll continue to take the lessons learned from it when we then go and set up LA. And we'll continue to take the lessons learned from when we go and set up Dubai. So it's it's these things. I don't see it as a failure. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. Um, do you have any other siblings? Yes, I'm the youngest of three. So an older brother, six years, and then my oldest sister is nine years older. Yeah, because they do say, depending on where you are in the line, the kind of attitude that you you come out with, really. So uh, I'm not sure that, you know, psychologically, the, the psychology behind it all, but it's uh, just interesting. You're, you're the youngest. So tell me more about F, the FB way. So the FB way is um, all about our kind of internal sales methodology, sales process. Probably the best way to underpin it is by three principles of control, influence, and urgency of our processes, not of people. Not not here playing Jedi mind tricks with people. Um, but it's it's all attentive. It is forward thinking. It is um, trying to spot issues, even as minimal as they might be. Um, to ensure that they never kind of crop up. I guess that's similar thing from a law perspective of when you're going into any case, I mean, I never did proper court cases, but even the moot cases that we did do, you spend almost as much time on the opposition's um, arguments. So you've got your own rebuttals ready as much as you would do um, on your own, right? So it's trying to look for those future issues to make sure that they never actually become an issue and that you kind of address them ahead of time with people. And it's made, it's it's an all transparent type of way of working with, like you said, we've got two sets of customers in one process. That's two sets of emotions, which is often four sets of emotions when you take partners and bosses into mind and so on as well. Um, and you've got to try and manage all of that. So that's not an easy thing to do. Um, we're not dealing with an inanimate object or product here. Um, so it's it's understanding that and that people are at the center of everything. So having those human relationship people. So can you break that sales process down uh, for me a little bit more? It, it's um, control, influence, and urgency. So what bit is what do you mean by the control, or you know, I presume influencing the customer, or also, but I don't know. Yeah. So um, take the control element. I would expect all of my people to have an understanding of what is happening when, what's agreed with the client, what are the timelines to um, certain situations, as well as on the candidate side, what's their position, what are the processes are they in, et cetera, et cetera. And not just leave it to assumptions or to chance, for instance, as well. So really getting into the depths of it, as well as exploring the what ifs in any situation as well. Um, if you want to talk about things like urgency, it's, it's ensuring that our clients understand that probably the second biggest, most influential in, um, impactor on successfully hiring is your time of process, the efficiency of that process. Um, most clients tend to underestimate that. and Most will just let things kind of tick over, et cetera, et cetera. So most people get their preferred talent based on number one, the role. Number two is obviously like the financials, the package and so on as well. But then people do tend to underestimate the speed of that process. And that is the candidates one window into your culture as a business. So they're not just looking at it from a, oh, what's this process been like? They're evaluating you just as much as you're evaluating them. They're looking at you as a, is this what decision-making like is in this business? If I'm, if I'm trying to get something approved or we want to head in this direction, is it going to take two weeks to even get a meeting on the books, to then discuss it, 
And then that's got to go through some sort of committee, et cetera, et cetera, because that's what I'm experiencing here in the in the recruitment process as well. And so that's their one window where they're evaluating your culture as a business too. And people don't think about those things a lot of the time. They, they kind of put that in a bit of a vacuum. So it's making sure that everyone involved in one of our processes is aware of that. And we've got the tightest timeline. So our clients are represented in the best possible way. Where again, it comes out with the, an individual saying that is the best run process that I've ever experienced. Yeah. Yeah, I think you've just made an interesting point. I was having a conversation yesterday with I've got an Airbnb um, that's staying with me and interviewing in the banking um, sector. And um, they had, they're doing a, um, a psychometric testing. Yesterday they had an interview over from uh, Singapore, I think. And, and now they've got four more levels in the process and they don't know how long it will take. So if they're here for a month, will they finish? Will they have to go home, come back? Or four more levels to go through. So from the initial interview to the psychometric testing. And and I, I've never connected with it. With I mean, I wouldn't obviously be an entrepreneur. I wouldn't even start to go through that process. It's, my life is too short, really. Um, but, yeah, thinking about is this the decision-making process of the organisation, if that is quite acceptable, why do you think organisations, with the advent of technology, why do you think they make these processes long and involved and part of it is quite unnecessary? Are they trying to reduce risk because of the cost of recruitment, is that what they're doing? But actually, they're making so many mistakes with it. What do you think is going wrong? I think um, I think that a lot of it is through that risk element, right? The more people we can kind of bring into the process and so on, then the more people say, yes, sign off on it. It's counterintuitive, which is a big issue. And that's because the more people in a process, invariably, someone's going to find an issue with that person somewhere, Right. And then by that, also by that very token, if you've got a traditionally a four, five, six step process, lasts a number of weeks and so on, the best talent is already going to get snapped up by those who are forward thinking, who are fast and efficient in their processes. So that invariably leaves you with kind of option number three, four or five in, in terms of what you're left with. Now, the very nature of the fact that they're your third, fourth or fifth option in terms of probability of succeeding in your business now you've actually actually added on even more risk because they're not as strong as options number one and two for you. So you're likely to have exacerbated your problem by uh, elongating the process and and that's costing you money, right? Because there's usually a loss of productivity or work product or outcomes in where someone's not sat there doing the job. And you're getting someone who statistically on probability is less likely to work out. No. And then you're going to go back to that hiring process. <laughs> So it's, again, I think it's just that thing of a lot of people don't understand. I mean, they're, they're not in the industry, so they don't understand some of these ramifications. In a similar way, you ask me to start coding something tomorrow, I don't understand coding, but they don't understand how to run an effective talent process as well um, in a lot of ways. And, and again, I come back to that same thing of it's the done thing, and it has been for so long now as well. Yeah, yeah. So, Rohil, uh, who's your hero or shero? I have a lot of people I look up to in influences, whether that's across business and all sorts, but I've probably mentioned a few times, there's probably no one more influential in my life than my dad. And I almost find it a shame that it took me until like some point in my early to mid twenties to actually truly realize that. 
Um, but I think a lot of my attributes that I have, good and bad, probably come from him. And I'm probably as I've grown up over the last 10 years or so, I've understood that more and more. But I think probably in my early 20s, I was like, oh, nothing like my dad with, with polar opposite personalities. I look at it now, it's actually, no, there's a lot more similarities than I thought. So why? Why your dad? Um, that lack of fear of failure is probably instinctively from him. Whilst I can't touch on or I've not experienced the levels of grit and determination he's had to come through, we're talking about a 14-year-old boy from a country where he's come with little to no education, doesn't speak the language, wasn't even a, he came in 66, wasn't even aware about the World Cup victory or anything like that. And the euphoria that probably would have been about the country. He jokes about it and says, I came here to work. When was I watching the World Cup? Um, no education, has worked up from the ground up. The kind of situations that he would have lived in, I just places he was living and so on, I've never lived in anything like that. I've not had to slum it in the way that he has. But I'm not afraid to slum it, I guess, in my version either. Um, so I think that kind of grit, determination, ambition, what he's achieved in his life from where he came from, with the conditions that he faced in the time frame, it, it's, there is no comparison between it, right? Um, I think as a second generation um, ethnic uh, person who, who's British here, I think you don't understand that unless you've kind of had that influence from a parent or a grandparent that you've been close to or something like that as well. Yeah. Um, so what he's going to achieve in his life is phenomenal. Excellent. Excellent. Well, what a wonderful way to end it. It's come full circle in terms of grit and determination and everything. So thank you so much for sharing your story and giving other founders advice. Um, and uh, I really uh, appreciate, you know, all of the insights that you, you've shared, Rohil. Um, how can listeners get hold of you? So um quite heavily active on LinkedIn. Um, so just Rahil Ahmad and you'll find me at Full Set Fans on LinkedIn, posting most days. Um, Instagram account as well, Rahil FB, yeah. um, of which doing more and more on the kind of social medias as well. So um, I'm more than happy to have any conversations for anyone I can advise or help uh, at the same time. All right, excellent. Well, thank you for being a guest on Scale Your Sales podcast, Rahil. Thanks for having me. All the best. For listening to this week's episode of Scale Your Sales podcast. If you like this discussion, feel free to listen to other episodes or watch the captioned show on YouTube and subscribe to future episodes. I would really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review on iTunes. Thank you.